Do you sometimes feel like the people around you aren't really necessarily the best ones for your own personal growth? Have you ever felt a little disconnected from your friends and not even really knowing exactly why? Feeling like you're not quite there or present when you're with your friends? Do you feel like you're going from one thing to the next all day long, often feeling at the end of the day exhausted and not even fulfilled? Do you feel a lack of purpose from time to time, feeling a little drifting, kind of a sense of drifting in your life? And do you feel like this image, this image of, quote, shallow water reflects maybe at least part of your life? Like sometimes that's the image. You're just treading on shallow water when you could be standing. If any of these questions resonate with you, then I know you're going to love my conversation with Dr. Abraham Nussbaum. He's going to provide an anchor for you that'll provide direction and a greater purpose and give you some tips on how to move toward the more exciting and fulfilling deep end of life. So let's get going because there is some good stuff up ahead. Are we living the most real life possible? I ask myself this question all the time. Most of the time, the answer is, I just don't know. Sometimes the answer is, definitely not. This is why I have this podcast. I'm Matt Botker, and welcome to the show. Before we get started, just three small things. First, please, please leave a review where all reviews are accepted, like Apple Podcasts. It's the main way by which this podcast gets into the hands of other people. Second, please consider supporting Living the Real through a small recurring donation at patreon.com slash LTR or a one-time donation through Venmo or PayPal, all in the show notes. Third and last, please visit livingthereal.com and sign up for my newsletter or you'll get updates on future resources like upcoming blogs, YouTube channels, guest appearances, and exclusive content on my Living the Real Method. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to episode 12 of Living the Real. My name is Matt Botker, and I am your host. Today, I have a conversation with Dr. Abraham Nussbaum. He is a psychiatrist. He is the chief education officer at Denver Health. He studied literature and religion in Swarthmore College, completed his medical school and his psychiatry residency at the University of North Carolina. This individual is absolutely an expert in his field, but also a profoundly deep thinker. I use his book that was published about three and a half years ago, entitled The Finest Traditions of My Calling, One Physician's Search for the Renewal of Medicine. We use this as kind of a launching pad to discuss this idea that came from a quote You're going to hear about it in just a few moments about this idea of the value of experience being pursued by seeing wisely rather than seeing much. It is a powerful quote. I'm excited to share my conversation with you, with Dr. Nussbaum. All right, Abraham, thank you so much for taking some time out of your crazy busy day. The reason why I'm having you on. So we actually, quote, met during the lockdown of the pandemic, when we did a previous podcast called Pandemic, it was early in April. So we were still kind of in the midst of the lockdown and taking your view of like, what's going on? How can we like live the most real life possible? And there was a a couple things you said at the end of the podcast, really seeing crises as a house of virtue and how we can actually build that up in our lives. And I want to talk about it in the context of this book that you you wrote three and a half years ago was published. And I have to do full disclosure, Abraham. I'm only a third of the way through it by the time we had this conversation. So it is a great book. It's great. For those of you who maybe have a sensitive stomach, there are a couple of times where you've made some really detailed 
analysis of your medical school that I was like eating lunch while I was listening to it. And that was not the best combination at that point in time. But, and I want to use this as a launching pad of how have you imbibed this in your own life and how can we, like myself included, be able to practice this in a particular way? So it's called The Finest Traditions of My Calling. And I love the subtitle, One Physician's Search for the Renewal of Medicine. And it seems as though there's a particular quote from this Dr. William also that seems to be, again, I'm only the third way through, so you can talk back about whether this is not. It seems like the anchor of this book. And the quote is, the value of experience is not in seeing much, but in seeing wisely. So two questions I want to throw to you first is, what motivates you to write this book? And second, how has this quote shaped your life as well as this book? Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoy the first third of the book, uh, but even more the Two, second, the last two-thirds of the book, where I think I kind of figured out uh, more of how to write. It was the first time I'd written a book uh, to engage a popular audience. As you can tell, there were some places where I may have gone a little overboard with the medical details. But medicine's a physical act. It's this physical act of attending to other people. And so part of what's important is that you name those material things because they matter. And one thing that's important when thinking about the author quote the value of experience is not in seeing much, but in seeing wisely, is to think about the material situation he was describing. I encountered that quote uh, as an inspirational quote on the bulletin board in a hospital conference room when people, the kind of place where people would go and kind of give you a pep rally about trying to increase your revenue or decrease your bad patient outcomes, all of which are important things. And people, people put it on the wall as if it meant be wise, right? Be, be thoughtful. And I decided to go back and read the original quote. And when you do, the original quote is really about this question about a, an army physician named Beaumont. There's a med school named after him in the United States who really discovered how digestion works. And that's important. It's important to know how the stomach digests the things that we consume. But if you think about it in terms of the material ways that he did that, he did so by, by effectively abducting. Uh, a native indigenous Canadian, um, and keeping him sort of semi-hostage for several years as a research subject. And it's important that you think about at what cost is wisdom obtained? And I I would say that I think that's a weird example to invoke in contemporary medicine, because I don't think we think that we ought to hold people, especially indigenous people, as uh, research subjects in order to obtain wisdom. So you're right. Though, actually, the original title of the book was Seeing Wisely, uh, and it was meant ironically. And the publisher ultimately thought that that Seeing Wisely was too um, obscure, that it wasn't necessarily a medicine topic. Uh, you know, the question of vision and wisdom isn't limited to medicine. So they, they pushed me, I think appropriately, towards a more medical title. So the title I picked was from the Hippocratic Oath. But... I would hope that, like you, readers could find something to think about it that applied beyond medicine to what it means to see people and what it means to be wise. When I was reading this, it kind of opened my eyes to the name of this podcast is Living the Real. It's all about trying to just reconsider my own life and the people's lives of how we live the most real life possible. And then reading the first third of your book, and this is not the only place, but it really put an anchor in this, that the complexity of even just asking that question because you have that that great uh, beginning, I don't know if it's great, but you started off with your, I don't know if you were in med school, Abraham, or if it was like your residency, but you started off with this story about 
you had some a physician who was overseeing you and he sent you off to deal with basically a dying patient in the hospital. And you really kind of juxtapose the levels or like an onion, the levels of real in people's lives that they have to address. Because the physician who I think for him, it seemed like the way you're proposing at least one level is the real was, I got to keep the lights on. And there's this kind of pressure to, you were saying that if he's 10 minutes in, he makes money. 12 minutes, he's even 13 minutes, he's, you know, he loses money. This is his reality. And then, but then there's the other sense of the real, of the caring of a patient and just the complexity of asking the question, what is real, which I'm assuming is kind of part of this whole quest in search of what you were trying to do with this book and, and the conclusions you made of what does it mean to be a real physician and now moving from a physician to a psychiatrist, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I talked about an experience early in my med school rotations where uh, the internist who I was um, working with had a patient uh, in the emergency department next door. and He asked me to go and inform the family what was mm-hmm. going on. And I, I think one way to think about that, right, is, is that in that old school version of what it means to be a doctor, what Osler was talking about was this idea that that's what you did. You threw people into the deep end, and they learned through experience. But the problem is that in that metaphor, right, the the seeing much part, the deep end is actually other people's lives. And and what was hard about what happened there wasn't that it asked a lot of me. It was that it really asked a lot of the patient's family. That part of why they had a primary care doctor was so they'd have somebody who would journey with them through these difficult events. And instead, they got me. And and they deserved somebody more skilled and experienced than me. I didn't know much. I was a first year med student. So, but that is the old school way of training doctors that we just say, Hey, go out there, figure it out. And some of that's appropriate, but some things like telling somebody that their family members mm-hmm. dead, probably something that want to train people and model for them wisely along the way. Unpacking a little bit of this phrase, I kind of want to learn how you use this idea of not seeing much, but seeing wisely. I see that sense of much. I get it. It makes sense. The value experience is not seeing much. I, you know, the, the things that come to my mind, I'm not a doctor, but I'm thinking of, I work on the university campus, so I see students. And they're and and they're they're in this kind of muchness. It's constantly moving from one podcast to the next, one video to the next, gaming. Go, they're frantically moving from one thing and absorbing tons of material on a on a shallow end, almost preventing them to go deeply with anything, including people, as a byproduct of this. So this is my immediate reaction. I can see this this other kind of quote pandemic in the University of Colorado among students, and but then the interesting juxtaposition is. The opposite is not little. The opposite is seeing wisely. And as you've wrestled with this, what does it mean to see wisely? It's a, it's a way more abstracted concept than the word much. Yeah, I, I think people talk about, I read somewhere, and I don't recall where, and I apologize for stealing the idea, that in the 19th century, we really built extractive technologies of the earth, mm. you know, taking trees and animals and oil and building wealth that way. And then in the 21st century, the extractive technology is really our attention. Mm. And, and we've figured out how to use the neurosciences and the technology devices we have. We've figured out how to take these devices and extract your attention. And, and so it's become the case that one of the most important things is to think very consciously about what you give your attention to. Mm. Because what you give your attention to largely reveals what you love and whom you serve and what will be your master. Mm. And to the extent that you can, it's important to control that. 
Many factors are designed instead to divert you. Mm -hmm. So you're in Boulder or Boulder area. Mm -hmm. One book, you know, your interest is in how you live better on some level or live the real life. Mm -hmm. One book that I've really enjoyed is Nicholas Carr's Mm -hmm. The Shallows. Have you have you read that book? No, but somebody else has recommended it just like a month ago. So it's the second person. Yeah. So he's he's based up there in Boulder. Oh. And it's a really cool book about what the internet's doing to our brain. Mm. And sometimes when I'm talking to people about this, I'll talk about how he uses that metaphor of the shallow. And so I'll talk about that shallow end that, that we don't ever get to deep thought. And that's the other book that I really like in the vein of the work you're doing is Cal Newport's book. Yeah, Deep Work. You know about Deep yeah. yeah. And I think those are two books that I've read together and thought about. Mm-hmm. So you began this conversation by asking me sort of what prompted me to write this book. Yeah. And there are, of course, many answers to that. But one of them is, is that I had a grant. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think people don't focus enough about the material yeah. uh, uh, events that allow people to do work. And so halfway through my time as an attending here, I got a grant that paid for two years of my labor, mm-hmm. half time. And so one month I would do my usual job, which is awesome, but distracting, yeah. uh, seeing lots of patients, answering lots of emails, uh, being in charge of drop off and pick up for the kids mm-hmm. with my wife, all of the usual busy work. And then the other half of the time, I really had an opportunity to read for the first time since I was a small, like a teenager, yeah. to read seriously and deeply. And, and it ultimately being a version of the kind of deep work that Cal Newport talks about. Yeah. And, and I found that you just, there's just ways of being in the world and of reading that you forget you have. So it really made that possible. I, I could not have written this book without the material support of a grant to be able to just read deeply and, and reflect on the things that have been done to me and that I do to other people as a physician. You mentioned that healthcare turned into a commodity. The first thing I came to was when you treat things as a commodity, and, and this this hit home for me just personally, not only things, but people as a commodity, then you treat things as if you're solving a problem. I think that's kind of the nature you go to because that's the marketing strategy. That's how you get people to like, people Google problems and you want to be at the search results. And that's kind of what healthcare has become as a problem solver rather than t- dealing with the person and in a, a proactive healthcare reform, all these things come together, and I totally get that—that that sense of, in my own life, how I've treated people as commodities and try to be problems to fix. Yeah, it's it's a great challenge, right? So, as a psychiatrist, I would say that many of those encounters that we have today are transactional. There's nothing wrong with the transactional encounter if it's the right encounter to have. Yeah. But but the best encounters, the ones that exchange you, are relational, and you have to know that going in. And one of the great mistakes we've made in medicine today is, is that we've largely pushed it toward transitional encounters. Mm-hmm. Some things can be. I personally don't want to have a deep relationship with the person who gives me a flu shot. <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. Honestly, yeah. the flu shot's what does the work. Yeah. I'm happy to stand in a line at a Walgreens or a King Supers and get my flu shot. But if it's about to talk to somebody about my mood, big existential questions, whether or not I have cancer or not, or chronic disease of some kind. Yeah. I want a person to look me in the eye and be in the room with me mm. and be some company along the journey. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't want it just to be a, a series of numbers I get texted. So I think the best version of this, right, is to say, let's do a grid. What's transactional in my life? Yeah. What should be? And then 
build those things out of transactional algorithms, right? That's fine. Yeah. But some things need to be relational. You know, I I have a I have a car and it needs servicing once in a while. That's transactional for me. As it happens for me, I ride my bike more. And so that actually is more relational. I have a bike mechanic that I have a relationship with mm. uh, in the sense that he knows the bike and he knows what I like about the bike. My grocery store is mostly transactional, right? Yeah. Uh, but my meal, the dinner table I have, is deeply relational, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you talked about my son. One of the things that you have to do, or I think you have to do as a parent, is get kids to see that the dining room table, wherever you eat, is a place where you stay even after the meal's over. Teenagers sometimes want to say, I have consumed the nutrients. Now may I leave the table? (laughs) The answer is no, right? Because the nutrients aren't the important part. I'm not going to just give you like a a little pellet with everything in it that you need. We're going to actually sit here. It's what forms around the food that matters. How do you help people? I mean, clearly it's not just genetics. Get out of this victim mentality and be able to see life in the sense of discovery, there's opportunity here. Like your son, like that was a perfect example of, I don't know if you remember this story. I don't know how many times you said this. I think it recently happened where it was the lockdown and it was maybe a few days prior. He was like, let go out of his, he was like grounded or something for something. So three days. And then all of a sudden the lockdown happened. He could have just sat there and been like, Man, this sucks. And my parents just scripted this, and I'm just going to pout until the until the lockdown is over. And instead, he made something of it, and it was awesome. He learned how to cook a three course meal. How how do we get other people to cook three course meals out of out of difficult times? And right now, it's really a struggle. It's a really a struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think my son probably might tell a little story differently, right? Because he would tell you how does he. The real question is how he's managed to survive his father. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but if you want to use that example, right? Like, how do you get your son to cook a three-course meal? Mm-hmm. Well, he's 16. We've been doing this now for 16 years. Yeah. First of all, he's a great kid. Mm-hmm. He's a great person, and I'm, I'm grateful. He's a gift to me. Yeah. But we've also been doing this for him for decades plus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in general, that's the question. So I would tell you that what I, when I'm training people about how to do, a, say, a psychiatric interview, we talk to them about their habits how they relate to other people. So I'll try to talk to them about how to clear their mind before they encounter another person Mm. to remember why they're there, why the other person's there. I'll read them a quote from Simone Weil, which I love. Mm. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Mm. And then I'll tell them, just sit with somebody for a minute or two. After you set the stage, sit with them in silence. I'll read them a quote from Thomas Aquinas. Mm. He who is silent at first is heard afterwards. Mm. Right. And that just sit with somebody. I'll say to somebody, if you tell somebody, I've got 10 minutes with you, tell me, I've read about you, I've thought about you, tell me what you think's going on. And then you listen to them for two minutes. There's studies that show that they'll think, people will think that you spent much more time with them because of that. They'll much more engaged with you. All of these things. And the flip side is that you'll feel more purposeful and engaged too. So I try to make it a habit to teach that. But in my personal life, I try to make it sure that, it, that every day I have at least one encounter like that. Mm. One encounter that reminds me that I can attend to somebody else. Mm. And, and, and hopefully they can attend back to me. So I guess I would say you just, it's just like every other habit. You have to cultivate it. 
the last thing I would I would say on that subject is that it's important not to just accept that the people you're going to be in a relationship with are the people within your group, whether that's a racial group, a socioeconomic group, a political tribe, a religious tribe. You know, I think one of the most important things is that you be in a relationship with people who are not like you in, a, in some way that you think is important and substantive. If you look at, at why hospitals, public hospitals exist, for example, it's, it's because people wanted a place where they could encounter the poor because they believed that the poor could be a pathway to the encounter of the divine. Mm. They believed it was important that you met people different than yourself. So it's not sufficient to say, I'm just going to talk and have relationships with my family. Family's mm. great. Family's also painful. Yeah. You need to have some relationships with people who will surprise you. That's great. Thank you so much, Amber, for being on. I don't want to keep you much longer. I just thank you for just sharing some of this, this valuable content for me and for my own life, and hope we can reconnect soon. Matt, I wish you the same. I wish you some time in the deep end uh, and some time uh, in some good relationships. Peace. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. One small thing before we close this episode, I just want to do a quick one-minute reflection on this idea of experience that everyone experiences something similarly, but the value is dramatically different from person to person. And I really encourage you all to be on the value side of your experience, not to take the victim mentality, not to take the victim mentality, that when we experience life, our first and foremost question we ask ourselves, especially in the difficult moments, is where is the gift in this? What does this make possible? So I encourage you this week to discover, do not determine life and the people around you. See you all next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living the Real. If you want to check out more information, go to livingtheReal.com and sign up for my newsletter. If you want to support this podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash LTR, as well as one-time payments at Venmo and PayPal in the show notes. See you all next episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Before you head off, I just have one small favor to ask of you. If there's anybody in your life that you can think of, two people that might really could use this Living the Real podcast, would you share it with them this week? I'd greatly appreciate it. Somebody in your life like, man, they could just use a deeper perspective, right? Maybe a calling to a bigger purpose, or maybe they just need a better plan in their life. Share with them. Give them the hope that they need to be able to get out of whatever they need to get into, to be inspired to do something great. So if you can think of two people in your life right now who could use a little bit more of a realness in their week, please share it with them. Take care. Bye-bye.